Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perot, executive producer of the Broken Brain docuseries. This podcast is dedicated to continuing the conversations that Dr. Hyman and I started during the Broken Brain series. Each week, we'll invite a new guest who we think will help you improve your overall brain health, feel better, and help you live your best life. Today's guest on the podcast is my dear friend, Dr. Stephen Lin. Dr. Stephen Lin is a world-leading functional dentist. TEDx speaker and author of the international number one Amazon bestselling book, The Dental Diet. As a passionate, preventative, whole health advocate, Dr. Lin focuses on understanding of dental diseases through nutritional principles. His work has highlighted that crooked teeth and the orthodontia epidemic are diet-based problems and the need for public health policy to prevent braces in the next generation of children. His acclaimed book, The Dental Diet, is published in the US, Canada, UK, Australia, where I'm currently calling him from, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and a few other countries, and it's currently being translated across a whole host of other languages. It's been featured across national TV, print, and radio outlets such as Fox, CBS, ABC, KTLA, and all the other regulars. Dr. Lin's work has reached millions of viewers worldwide. And he's been published in Esquire Magazine, Women's Health, the Sydney Morning Herald, and he's a regular contributor at Mind, Body, Green, and Very Well. Dr. Lin, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Hey, Drew. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And a little funny story. Uh, we had to cancel our interview last time for the best of reasons. Uh, you sent me a Facebook message and said that uh, your wife was uh, going into labor, so you had to cancel the podcast. So congratulations. You're a father now. Right. Thank you very much, Drew. And I apologize for that. But uh, yeah, our son, Eric, came a week early, so he was a little surprised, but uh, he's here and healthy and mom's healthy too. So that's been quite a journey. But I've, um, yeah, it's, it's been quite a week, uh, but I, I'm happy to, I've, I've been looking forward to this, man. Yeah. And congratulations to your wife as well. That's one of the best reasons to miss anything in life is the blessing of a baby. So very cool. Um, I've been wanting to have you on the podcast for a while because on the surface, it's not clear exactly why we would have uh, a dentist on the podcast about sort of whole body health and brain health. But I'm excited for our listeners because their mind is literally about to be blown away in this interview. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really excited to jump in. So on that note, I want to start off kind of a little bit broader picture. You know, when you open your book, The Dental Diet, and uh, you start talking to the reader about the value of a smile, um, you talk about some of the key elements of why healthy teeth and a smile are so important. And it might not be the things that we often think of. Can you help break that down, break that down for us? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, I, I think there's, a, there's actually a, um, a statistic that show that people find the most attractive part of a face is often their smile and teeth. And so when you look at someone, when you identify with someone, um, one of your friends or your family members, you identify with their face. And as humans, we are very much programmed to identify um, people's facial structures. And this has been proven in studies by babies, for instance. They'll actually uh, react more positively to people with more symmetrical faces. So we have an in, uh, a hardwire to people with better developed faces. And so how that translates is that people with 
uh, facial features such as nice square jaws, uh, well-defined cheekbones, they're the ones that we see on magazines, isn't it? And, and there's a reason for that. It's, we actually are evolutionary hardwired for that because it projects uh, health, health and genetic wellness. And so when we pick mates as humans, when we identify with people, um, when we look at their face, we are actually looking at their health as a whole. And so that's what our face is telling us. So when you look at someone's smile, it's actually the architecture of their face as well. So the upper, the upper teeth, for instance, the, the teeth that you see between the lips when someone smiles, that's embedded into the upper jaw called the maxilla bone. And the maxilla bone makes up the cheekbone. So when you have a crooked, um, crooked smile with a high palate, which is a, a narrow upper, upper roof of the mouth, then you also have a skinny maxilla and you have a skinny face. And that will affect the way the face develops. So the teeth are very much the final building blocks of how the face is put together and they're dependent on how the face develops and faces are very important they're what we uh, identify to as humans but they're very much a message of our health and so that's why dental health is far more important than just fixing teeth it's actually a, a message of your whole uh, your beauty your overall health as a whole what's the connection between diet and oral health you know we've often most people, if they've had access to Western medicine um, and the idea of dental care, they primarily think of dental care as being related to not developing cavities and keeping your teeth clean. But there's a deeper connection between diet and oral health. Help us understand that. Right. And, and it's really great that you've kind of taken this line, Drew, because it's going to help us understand how we go from the teeth to the brain. And so one of the biggest problems in modern society today is that our jaws and teeth don't develop. And that kids today, you know, we have 80, 90% of kids today go in schools uh, needing orthodontics, so braces. And the reason for that is the point we just touched on, is that our jaws aren't developing. And so this has all happened since we began, to eating, uh, began eating the industrial diet. And so this is something we touch on in my book, is that once we take away certain nutrients, and once we take away the chewing factors in food, then our jaws stop developing. And that's why crooked teeth happen. They're a symptom of eating the wrong diet. And this is shown through anthropological studies. As soon as people move from traditional diets into the civilized um, industrial diet, we begin to see crooked teeth. And why that's so important is that the, the basis of uh, the jaws and the, the craniofacial structures are based in the airways. So when you have crooked teeth, by definition, you have a small mouth and you also have small airways. So whilst our diet has given us teeth that we need to straighten with braces, and another fa uh, part of this as well, Drew, is that uh, we extract wisdom teeth. And that's the same symptom of the same problem, is that our jaws aren't growing um, in our adolescence. So wisdom teeth impactions, crooked teeth and braces are all the product of our diet. And so what happens then is that this craniofacial structure that we don't um, develop with the right food then puts us in a structure where we don't breathe properly and it flows onto our brain. So our food is directly relating to our teeth and then it, and our brain suffers as a result. 
that's a whole uh, fascinating concept. And there's so much there. And we're going to come back to the airways and breathing and and how sleep apnea, um, something that you have been educating me on ever since we've been friends, is so much of a bigger issue than just the classic person who's overweight and having breathing issues. But let's stay on the pathway of processed foods for a second, because I think this is a major concept that's new for a lot of people. So I just want to make sure we don't skim over it too quickly. So what you're saying is that historically, as our diets have changed and they've become more processed, that's developed more crooked teeth and of course crooked airways. But what is the mechanism? Why is it that our old sort of more ancestral diets uh, kept a better jaw structure is it just chewing alone? Like, what is it about processed foods that started to actually change the structure of our uh, teeth and airways? What our teeth and jaws teach us in terms of how they develop by the way we feed them is that there are nutrients that we give our jaws that we probably haven't appreciated. And we've taken these out of the, um, of the modern diet. And the first is the physical function. So that's the chewing, the, the raw mechanical function. Studies show that when we move from a, a diet on uh, fibrous foods and um, foods where we have to use our teeth and jaws, it takes away the development. It's just like any musculoskeletal joint in the body, that if we want to grow big, strong arms and joints, then we go to the gym, don't we? And so the same process happens with our mouth, and it begins with breastfeeding. And so when a child uh, is taught to push the nipple up to the roof of the palate, that the palate is soft uh, like wax, and it actually expands out their palate. And that physical function of swallowing and then breathing through the nose, which is the other factor, actually helps to expand the maxilla. So breathing, chewing, and physical um, nutrients are something that we've taken out of the diet and that has unfortunately made our jaws thinner. Now, the other factor is how our body manages calcium. And so this is a big part of what I've explored in my book in that we have stripped out the nutrients that distribute calcium into our bones and teeth. And so these nutrients are the fat-soluble vitamins. That's vitamin D. Everyone knows that our bones don't develop properly when we don't have enough vitamin D. Uh, the rickets epidemic in the, in the late 1800s occurred when, before we knew about vitamin D. And what happened was we found that kids, their long bones and their legs wouldn't hold their weight up because they were missing a certain nutrient. And that led us to discover that in cod liver oil, there was vitamin A and also vitamin D. What vitamin D does is it helps us to absorb calcium from our diet. So if you're vitamin D deficient, which unfortunately a lot of people are now, you won't absorb calcium by definition from your diet. Now, the thing that we've missed though, is that there are nutrients that work with vitamin D and that's vitamin A, and a lesser-known vitamin called vitamin K2. And what vitamin K2 does is it activates proteins that carry calcium out of your soft tissue, so out of your cardiovascular um, vessels, out of your kidneys, your prostate, your things like your gallbladder, and into your bones and teeth. So when we don't have these fat-soluble nutrients that come from animal products such as um, we get them from organ meats, uh, egg yolks, grass-raised dairy, uh, then we, by definition, aren't giving our body the fuel to grow jaws. So when we don't eat enough fat-soluble vitamins, that's how our jaws don't grow by definition. Physical function, 
and fat-soluble nutrients to manage and build calcium and strong bones. I mean, there's so much there to unpack. You know, so many people have heard about the environmental impact on our body. They've heard about things like how meditation can improve brain health. But I would say that when it comes to uh, overall health and brain health, like the fact that dentistry is connected is so new for so many people here. And I, and I think I want to ask you the question that a lot of people are thinking about is that you're talking about so many things that most people's dentists have never addressed uh, with them. How did you start to unpack this work and um, – you know, where does your own personal story fall into uh, finding out about all these aspects about dentistry and how it's related to our whole health? Right. It, it was really a journey. I, you know, in, after finishing, finishing dental school and going out into the world and practicing, you know, you're excited. And as a dentist, you're trained with very, very exact skills on how to – you operate a drill piece at 400 um, RPM a, a second. And so it's, it's amazing how exact you have to be as a dentist. But it, what it does is it programs you to be very, uh, very focused on a, a small area of, of the body. And so eventually, once I began to, you know, to become comfortable in clinical practice, I began to wonder and be asked questions by my patients, you know, why things happen. You know, why, why does tooth decay happen in this child and not this child? And why does gum disease occur? Why, why does my sister have... Um, excellent teeth and I've got gum disease and I actually brush all the time. These questions weren't really answered by my tradition, my dental um, education and what I found was that there was a big question is that parents were asking me why some kids needed braces and why other kids, kids didn't or perhaps they didn't need braces as severely or for as long and I didn't have any clue about that and so it actually Took, I, you know, I took some time away from work to, to think about what I wanted to do because I, I was working with things that I didn't understand. And so I actually went traveling through Europe and I was in a, uh, a hostel in Turkey and I discovered a book called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration by a guy named Weston A. Price, who was a dentist. And he went around the world in the 30s and actually looked at with his theory that food has changed and caused the modern, di the modern dental disease that we see. And he studied traditional societies where the modern diet intercepts the traditional one. And what happens is he saw that tooth decay spikes up to its modern rates, but also crooked teeth. And in his book, he shows 19,000 photographs. Anyone can Google it if they, um, you know, while they're listening to the podcast. And you'll see photographs of these people with beautiful faces that we mentioned um, at the start, Drew. And it really struck me. I thought that I, I don't see faces like this anymore in my practice. And that began the journey to me. He, he wrote about this in the 30s. The book was lost. And what he was speaking about, there was a lot that was not understood. Uh, there was a lot that was lost. And it really took a lot of you know, nearly 60 years of science and research to to put it all into place, and that's what I've really tried to bring out in my practice and my book, that, that we have an incredible story in our mouth and that food is just critical to how our mouth forms and how our body forms subsequently. Ah, it's a fascinating story, and I love the fact that you know your story is so quintessential of so many people we've had on this podcast, which are great practitioners who are willing to say uh, in the face of questions or maybe even their 
own health being challenged, we're willing to say, you know what, I wasn't trained to answer this question, or maybe the answer that I was given in school isn't enough and is not sufficient for me or anyone else. So let me go on a journey. So number one, I applaud you for that. And I appreciate uh, you breaking it down for all the listeners over here, taking them on that journey of history. Any insight, you know, because history is always so compelling, any insight on how dentistry became so reductionist to primarily sort of uh, procedures, but when it came to health, you know, it just got so obsessed with uh, sugar and like getting rid of bacteria and plaque in the teeth, you know, any thoughts on, you know, how dentistry ended up that way? Yeah, it's it's a pretty good question, actually, Drew. There's, there's a book by Mary Otto called Teeth, and she talks about the socioeconomic um, segment, segmentation of dental disease in society and how we've really pushed dental disease uh, away from our mainstream zeitgeist of what health is because we have to go and pay for it. And, you know, in the US, in Australia, in many Western countries, that's how we place it. And so by doing this, we've somehow displaced teeth itself from the rest of the body. And so dentistry has been kind of thrown into that way of thinking. But on the other side, when you look at a lot of the old textbooks, so the first orthodontic textbooks, um, you know, they, they really actually took a much more uh, whole body approach. And so, for instance, Henry Angle, who, who wrote the, the textbook today that is still used by many orthodontists, he didn't like the idea of extracting teeth. And he really focused on the idea that we should focus on the development of the face. And in the 50s and 60s, what happened is that there were a couple of studies that came out and they looked at um, indigenous populations and wear on the teeth. And they thought that the over a lifetime, we should lose an amount of um, tooth position uh, over, over a normal human life. And so what they did is they used that to say that, well, we should extract teeth and put braces on to, you know, to straighten teeth. And that became the most predominant way of orthodontics today. And so little things like that, and the mouth is a very difficult place to work. So you have to be predictable. So dentists cling to what's predictable, and it's not always the easiest. And so I think that's somewhat been the problem that has led us down this reductionist and very hyper-focused way of looking at the mouth. And and some historical, unfortunate um, trip-ups along the way have, have also taken us away from a lot of the good information, but we're getting back to it. And that's, you know, what I really uh, enjoy about my practice now is that, you know, there's so much information in the mouth and we really can um, help people in very profound ways. Yeah. Well said. It's great work uh, amongst yourself. In fact, you're part of a, a group of uh, dentists that call yourself functional dentists, very similar to like functional medicine. And, you know, to paint the picture further, you know, you talked a little about the history, some of the insights and information that shaped your approach. But walk us through what is a most of your work right now is focused on education and speaking and lecturing and actually training other dentists. But you did have a private practice, you might still have a private practice. When somebody comes to see a functional dentist, how is the intake process and how is the process of you looking at the health of somebody's teeth different than a traditional family dentist? Yeah, this is a space that I've, um, as you know, Drew, I've been focusing on the last few years and that one, I found that after going down this road of nutrition, that my training, as we mentioned, really didn't 
cover a lot of that. And I really found like, wow, there's a lot of basic information there that dentists need to understand before they, uh, you know, really they're advising people on, uh, you know, life habits and how can we change this picture of being so reactionary. And so today what we have is that dentistry has a very intricate patchwork of people that have been focusing on one area and um, let's use airway and sleep as an example because that's a very big one. And so the jaws and teeth are a huge indication for how people sleep. And we are now in an um, epidemic of people that don't breathe right when they sleep. And it's largely because of using the mouth in the incorrect way and how the jaws develop. And so dentistry has moved to a space called airway dentistry. And this really is a, an approach that understands that the teeth really have a profound implication on the airways. And so we can use this in many different ways. And so the connection between periodontal disease and the heart. So that underlying inflammation really shows that, you know, we can predict via inflammation in the mouth, potentially risks of cardiovascular disease down the road. Now, that's a very powerful thing, right? But all of these links really do come together in a very profound way, which I like to call functional dentistry. And it's been moving in a space probably more called holistic dentistry. So you might Google people that are holistic. And what they tend to focus on is removing amalgams, so mercury, um, which can be issues with people or, anti, or they don't use fluoride. And so that's the space as well, so biocompatible treatment. Um, and what this is culminating in, I think, is that we have the functional medicine movement, but we really have a very, very powerful functional dentistry movement that comes together, and then we've got the whole picture. The, the united theory of um, medicine, if you, you know, that might be what we call it. But so for people out there that are looking for dentists that practice in this way, they may not call themselves functional dentists, but they might work in airway and sleep, or they may work as a holistic um, uh, non-mercury or non-fluoride dentist. And so you might talk to them and they might be able to refer you somewhere else, but that they'll know that there's more to the picture than just drilling and filling, which really is what we see as conventional. It's a very powerful movement. It's early, so you do have to do some searching and some research, but it's there. And so there's a fair bit of information about that on my website too. Um, but I do really encourage people to go out there and try and get your mouth looked at in this perspective. Uh, the breathing thing is so fascinating, and I keep on saying we're going to come back to it, but we will because I, I really want to give it the, the time that it needs, but I just still want to help set up the premise of a few sort of key concepts that are so important to understand about dentistry and dental health. So um, a, a couple podcasts ago, we had Dr. Liz Bohm, who's one of my colleagues at the Ultra Wellness Center, uh, Dr. Hyman and I Center, and she um, came on the Broken Brain Podcast, and she spoke about how one of the things she looks at as a medical doctor is uh, the inflammation that's building up in somebody's um, mouth and how the mouth can be a, a source of chronic inflammation and how a lot of diseases can begin in the mouth. Many people who watched our Broken Brain series are familiar with how a lot of diseases start in the gut, but help us understand how a lot of inflammation and chronic diseases can actually begin in the mouth. Yeah, it's really been an interesting that was one of the big scientific um, doors that opened for me is that the human microbiome, and this all happened in 2008, as many of your listeners would know, that we understood that as a biological entity, we're living alongside trillions of bacteria. 
And so this kind of spiked some interest for me. You know, really, in the, it wasn't until the 80s that we understood that bacteria could even live in the gut. And so the dentists have been talking about bacteria. I was talking about bacteria, you know, for, for decades. We, we've been talking about um, tooth decay and gum disease has been caused by bacteria. How didn't we connect that to the gut? It's really a fantastically um, obvious piece of information that we just looked over is that when you swallow, you swallow thousands of bacteria every second. It's that profound. You, if you're looking to optimize your gut health, you need to start in the mouth because they're both connected. And it begins at birth when uh, the, the childhood gut really hasn't seen any bacteria from the outside world. And the first bacteria it's supposed to be introduced to is in the vaginal canal. What happens is that the bacteria colonize the mouth and then, and then they're introduced to the gut. And for the first few months, the oral and gut microbiome actually stay the same. So uh, in a child's early um, weeks to months, they have a very similar oral and gut microbiome. But then what happens is they become separate. And the oral microbiome really is the, I like to call it like the little brother or the, um, you know, the, the, the guardian, the, the guy at the door protecting the, uh, the gut microbiome because everything that goes to your gut microbiome comes through the mouth and vice versa. So what we see is that there are trillions of bacteria also living in the mouth. So they protect you against tooth decay. They protect you against gum disease, against bad breath. Any condition in the mouth is due to a loss of the correct bacteria. And that was a big change in thinking on my behalf in that instead of scrubbing and, and disinfecting the mouth, we need to be enhancing its overall biological ecology. And that's what's translating to the gut, which then speaks to the immune system, which then speaks to the brain. All of a sudden, we've gone from the mouth to the gut to the brain. We've got a whole system here that we understand via our environment and what we input via food. And the oral microbiome really does allow us to think of the body in that way where we and I think it's going to be one of the most exciting areas of medicine, whereas we can measure and, um, and, and really see what's going on in the oral microbiome and then translate that to disease processes all over the body. But a lot of the research is focusing on the gut microbiome and we don't get a lot of focus on the mouth. And so this is something I really try and, you know, in my patients and in my book as well, it's, it's so important to understand that your mouth is connected, but also a messenger. And so... Bleeding gums really is probably the first sign of unhappiness in this uh, mouth and gut um, connection. You know, when your immune system is showing inflammation, it's either deficient in a nutrient or there's bacteria there that it's not happy with. And then it uh, expresses itself in inflammation, which is the first thing you'll see is bleeding gums. And so if you floss and you get a little bit of blood out, you should be thinking, oh, maybe my gut's not too happy. And if we take that approach, we can really prevent many conditions that are seated in the gut that become very difficult to treat down the track um, instead of, you know, letting them run their course. And just by identifying them in the mouth, it's, it's quite profound. Oh, it's incredible. So fascinating. And so, you know, really many of us grew up, especially I would say in the late 80s, early 90s, there was um, a whole real movement of like just all the rage in – in oral care was about getting rid of the bacteria that's in our mouth. You know, we have all these bacteria and everybody thinks like, oh, bacteria, it's all in our mouth. We got to use mouthwash, use Listerine, use these other 
brands out there and get rid of all the bacteria that's in there. And here you're talking about the importance of preserving a healthy microbiome, um, you know, uh, oral uh, microbiome. Um, uh, so what are the ways, what are some of the ways that we can begin that um, process of maintaining a better uh, ecosystem inside the mouth? Yeah, so firstly, establishing that the mouth is an ecosystem really does help us to move to daily habits that um, are more conducive to its health. And so the idea that we introduce an antibacterial into the mouth doesn't make a lot of sense to microbiome medicine, to, the, to dental medicine now, uh, once we understand that there are bacteria that are probiotic, that are beneficial to um, our dental health. And so the introduction of antibacterial agents daily really doesn't make a lot of sense. And there is research now beginning to come out. At the end of last year, there was a study that showed that people that use alcoholic mouthwashes, as you mentioned, Drew, uh, increase their, um, their risk of type 2 diabetes, so pre-diabetes. And there's a very simple mechanism there, is that when we reduce the uh, diversity in the mouth, we translate to the, a reduced diversity in the gut. And we know that type 2 diabetics have a re reduction in diversity of gut bacteria. And so what this is showing is that people that use an alcoholic mouthwash every day are translating that lack of diversity and increasing the risk of type 2 diabetes. And, you know, it's that profound now that, you know, we really need to be thinking about how we in, enhance um, our bacterial uh, ecology. And so this means that, you know, brushing and flossing potentially while we physically remove plaque, that's fine. Um, but using antibacterials daily do not make sense. So that's fluoride toothpaste. It's any kind of triclosan in toothpaste, which is still out there. I would heavily recommend not using, and also alcoholic or any mouthwashes, to be honest, daily really don't make a lot of sense, and the literature behind them don't make a lot of sense either, in that we don't know what they do to all of the bacterial species. They'll only talk about a very small amount, and so what we th we're then left with is, that, well, how do we introduce um, a healthy, balanced ecological environment in the mouth? Well, it's food. So lots of fiber, lots of uh, prebiotic fibers, lots of probiotic fermented foods, lots of nutrient-rich fat-soluble foods. That's how you create an environment that bacteria and your own cells are happy too. Amazing. Um, let's talk about like how one person's tooth enamel can be strong and cavity-free while another person, even if they brush regularly and have great, you know, what's considered traditional oral hygiene care is more cavity prone. What's the root cause when it comes to enamel and, and, and cavities? Yeah, okay, so we, there's actually two prongs there. And so your tooth is actually in a balance between what we've just talked about, which is the oral microbiome. And so if you have enough protective bacteria there, they'll actually inhibit the bacteria that cause uh, disease. And so that's one factor. We've covered that in somewhat, and that translates to the gut. But the other factor is inside the tooth. And this is something that was very profound for me to realize as a dentist that we have the power to, to intervene in, is that there are cells inside the tooth, inside the pulp um, of the tooth called odontoblasts, and they're part of the osteoimmune system. And the osteoimmune system comes from your, your bone stem cells. And what happens is that those stem cells either become bone-making cells or immune cells. Now, dental cells called odontoblasts are kind of in between. But what they do is they act like 
both a bone-making cell and an immune cell. They actually will remineralize or help to re remineralize your dentin and your tooth enamel. And they'll also emit an immune reaction to bacteria that are creeping down your tooth enamel. So tooth enamel has these big kind of um, tube-like uh, rods that bacteria are swishing up and down all the time. You have an inbuilt immune system that will keep you completely free of cavities and immune to tooth decay if you eat the right foods. And what feeds this osteoimmune system or odontoblast? And that's a fat-soluble vitamin, vitamin D, vitamin A, vitamin K2. These odontoblasts are turned on or proliferated by, by vitamin A and vitamin D. They release proteins that are vitamin K2 dependent. So if you don't have enough of these nutrients, your teeth don't have that natural immune support. That's how we've walked into a tooth decay epidemic. And that's why people have tooth decay. If you look at any biological system in the, in the wild, whether it's humans going back thousands of years, they had plaque and calculus all over their teeth, but they didn't have decay. It's because they ate the right foods that gave them this inner natural immunity. Same with animal systems. The only time animals get tooth decay is when they're in zoos, or and that's also crooked teeth alongside that. Nature has this amazing system where you don't get tooth decay because basically if you're walking around as a hunter-gatherer and you get a big hole in your tooth, you're finished. You get a dental abscess, you're not going to survive in the wild. So you have to have an inbuilt system. And this, this is what we are designed to do and what we've unfortunately moved away from. You know, you talked about the work of uh, Western Price and, you know, he was way ahead of his time in sort of exploring out there. I went to uh, Kenya uh, last summer and I spent some time with this uh, tribe called the Samburu tribe. And, you know, they're a nomadic tribe. They move around every six to ten months. They don't have access to traditional uh, dental uh, care and um, they eat a very... A traditional diet that is probably what their microbiome has evolved around. They drink, it's quite crazy, but they drink uh, crazy to me, not crazy to them. You know, they primarily substantiate off of milk and berries and, and leaves and occasionally have meat during uh, celebratory holidays, but they're chewing on these different sticks and things like that. And I was so surprised at how straight and healthy their teeth looked. Um, and they were eating this diet that their ancestors have eaten for what is presumed to be, uh, when I was looking up the history, probably about a thousand, thousand years. And somebody would look at them and say, well, the society is quote unquote primitive. They don't have access to, you know, healthcare. And yet their teeth, even at a older age, um, unless if there's an injury or that sort of thing are perfect. It, it's it sends shivers down my spine you describing that because it's it's amazing how we've really become a species with amnesia where we've lost how our body and how our connection to nature and foods and what foods really do to our body and you know tribes like this and price look the the, the Maasai um, and cultures all over the world and the the message is so clear that. We don't get dental disease in any form, and that's impacted wisdom teeth, crooked teeth, gum disease, or tooth decay when we eat traditional diets. And the mechanisms that we've, we're kind of touching into in this really shows that science is all just collaborating why these people did what they did and why they're so healthy and why they don't get osteoporosis or 
type 2 diabetes or um, heart disease and it translates to why they have great dental health too so it's it's if anyone you know speaking to your grandparents i think is just and the generations before is really important because they have knowledge there that was that has basically transmitted our genetic uh, health and, and um, inheritance. And we, we really need to get back to that or you know, the, the consequences could be quite dire. You have this whole breakdown of how our oral health, you hinted at it earlier, relates to our airways and the design of our airways, which impacts our brain health. And I think for a lot of people, this right here is going to be maybe the most profound part of this interview and it really is a game changer when you understand this. So let's talk about nighttime breathing during sleep and what the difference is of breathing through your nose versus breathing through your mouth and what that has to do with our, our oral health. Right, yeah. It, and you know, the theme of this talk we've been having is that you know, teeth are important. Well, teeth taught me something very, very important about what we need, how we feed our bodies and that the crucial nutrients – your body will tell you when you're missing in the critical factors, vitamins, and nutrients that it needs, the first in the mouth. And the first nutrient that your body needs, you, know, you can only go minutes without it, is oxygen. And so in our mouth, we can see when we're not breathing, we're not delivering enough oxygen to our body. And how this translates to our dental health is that, as we mentioned before, when our jaws don't develop properly, so when we have a thin narrow upper palate when we have wisdom teeth that don't fit that's the back of the maxilla and mandible the upper and lower jaw that don't develop that is by definition airway space and so what that does is it pushes us into uh, what I like to call survival breathing and what happens is that we are designed to breathe through the nose and there's some very deep physiological reasons for that in that in the nose, we release nitric oxide, which mixes with the air, goes into our lung, and increases blood flow and pushes oxygen right throughout the body. Now, when we have crooked upper teeth and a high palate, we have nasal sinuses that have a lower volume, and we don't breathe through our nose as well as we would when we have nice ancestral wide jaws, lovely wide faces. So what happens is that we learn to breathe through our mouth, and this is delivering cold, unfiltered air that uh, alert our immune system, give us things like swollen tonsils and adenoids. But what happens is that we don't deliver ourselves oxygen. And the most crucial part of this is that the most hungry, the, the part of your body that requires oxygen the most is the brain. And so when you're not breathing correctly, you're starving your brain of oxygen. And so this can happen through the day. If you're breathing through the mouth 75% of the time, your brain isn't getting enough oxygen. But when you go to sleep, there's one thing you have to do, and that's breathe and deliver your brain oxygen. And the reason for this is that when you go into deep levels of sleep, your brain is depending on your breathing pattern to take your nervous system into this uh, level of sleep that then allows itself to clean out. And so oxygen and breathing patterns are what control that. So if you have a small uh, crowded mouth with a no and you're not comfortable with, with nasal breathing, you're then pushing your brain into this survival mode during, during sleep. And so, as you mentioned, sleep apnea. Now, sleep apnea is the most, the most severe form of this condition of airway and oxygen deprivation. And that's when we pause during sleep for 10 to 20 seconds. You count 10 to 20 seconds in your, on your hand. 
That's what people are doing up to 30 to 40 times a night. And that's your brain in deep distress. And so this is how we increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease, dementia, um, and mental decline, because we're not giving us our brain opportunity to regenerate and to replenish itself with the, the crucial nutrient oxygen. And, you know, where I was sharing earlier in the interview is that we typically think of like the, you know, if anybody has a family member or knows somebody diagnosed with sleep apnea, um, we typically think of somebody as uh, being uh, usually quite overweight. But one of the things you started noticing and hearing about from some of your colleagues is that there's this whole group of younger um, men, but especially women, that were coming in uh, with sort of these symptoms of anxiety, like waking up in the morning with anxiety. And um, tell us how that also relates to this breathing through the nose versus breathing through the mouth. Absolutely. So when we started to talk about the spectrum of sleep disorders now, we see that obstructive sleep apnea is at the very, very severe end. But what they found in the 90s at Stanford, a, a researcher called Christian Guillermo found that there was a group of his patients that showed positive results for a mandibular advancement splint, which is a dental sleep device um, that, didn't, that weren't diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea. And what he did was he called it a new syndrome called upper airway resistance syndrome. And it's not a recognized medical term yet, but there are many, many studies and lots of research out there showing that people with upper airway resistance syndrome, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's an airway that has more resistance. So upper airway resistance syndrome is characterized by an increased pressure in the airways. And how this happens in the body is that when we sleep, your muscles relax, and that increased pressure is detected by the brain. There's receptors in at the back of your throat and in the airways that tell the brain what the airway pressure is. Now, when we have a small bone structure and the, our muscles relax, what happens is the, the brain is constantly being sent these pressure signals, and it relates to a choking response. So the brain is then sent into fight-or-flight um, response. And so this is a survival response. This is why I call it survival sleep. And so what happens is that your brain will respond by pushing the jaw forward. And so the most common sign of upper airway resistance syndrome is teeth grinding. And we see this in the uh, dental practice, obviously, a lot. But what happens is that people may not even notice that they have this syndrome. You know, they sleep, they wake up, they don't feel that rested. It's because your body doesn't get to reach deep levels of sleep. And so... When the brain is in fight or flight, it's in sympathetic mode. It doesn't get to relax. In sleep, you should be going to deep parasympathetic mode to go into REM sleep, which then helps the brain to clean itself out. There's like a dishwashing effect happening in the brain with cerebrospinal fluid washes through the whole brain, clears out all the toxins. And this only happens in deep REM sleep. So if you're not breathing properly, the brain doesn't get that opportunity to go through that self-cleaning process. So what happens is you wake up, you don't feel rested, you feel a bit anxious because your sympathetic nervous system has been activated when it should be deeply rested. Your digestive system doesn't work because the vagus nerve and the parasympathetic nervous system doesn't get activated as it should and you don't digest well, you get digestive issues. So all of a sudden we see people with these chronic digestive problems and sometimes digestive paralysis. We see them with anxiety, depression, we see them with teeth grinding, we see them with headaches, we see them with aches and pains in joints. And this is 
all people that will go to, to have a sleep study, they'll say, Doc, I'm not sleeping very well. They'll get, and they'll say, well, we'll give you a sleep study. And, this, and the results will come back and say they don't have obstructive sleep apnea. And that's a polysomnograph. But what they do have is that they'll have respiratory effort arousal um, periods. And these are, are called R-E-R-A-S, RERAS. And so the, the result will show that they have these arousal periods that are characteristic of upper airway resistance syndrome. And the people at risk of this syndrome as anyone that doesn't have a jaw that's developed 32 teeth. So if you've had braces in, previously in your life, if you had your wisdom teeth out, uh, if you sleep on your stomach, uh, if you've had any kind of, um, in kids, we see kids mouth breathing through the day and mouth breathing at night. We see bed wetting. We see anyone that's a little bit anxious and don't sleep well. Um, the a, a big thing to watch out for kids are the, the shadowing under the eyes. If they're not sleeping well. That's a big sign this is happening. And this is all a sign, Drew, that we're not sleeping well and the brains are you know, in really distress for oxygen. And so we need to get back to one diagnose the problem, but then get us back to breathing properly. And so it's, there's a whole area of dentistry called myofunctional therapy where we learn to use the tongue and breathe through the nose and um, the principles of yoga where we breathe into the diaphragm. And something about the tongue, uh, which is a whole topic on itself, but when your tongue is postured to the roof of the palate, it actually sends parasympathetic nervous system uh, messages back to the brain. And so if you don't have your tongue postured to the palate, uh, then you don't get those messages from the start. And this contributes to this whole oral dysfunction, breathing dysfunction that flows on to a brain that is at risk of Alzheimer's disease. We now have the literature that shows that uh, obstructive sleep apnea um, significantly increases both Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And the mechanism is, qu is quite simple. If you deprive people of oxygen, what do you think is going to happen to their neural cells? They're going to degenerate. And so we're, we now have a population of people that don't breathe right, and it's all seated in our jaws, and we can fix it. The good news is we can fix it now that we understand it. We just need to take the mouth and breathing and the whole body into account. So fascinating. And, you know, you, in your book, you have uh, in your book, The Dental Diet, uh, which is fantastic. And, and uh, Dr. Hyman wrote the forward for it. So if you haven't checked it out, listeners, definitely check it out. It's available on Amazon. So in your book, you talk about a bunch of resources and other things that people can do exercises. But share a few with us here. If somebody feels like they are not breathing properly at sleep, one of the things that's trending right now is mouth tape. Is mouth tape a good thing for people to start using on their own? Is that one way to start correcting this process? Yeah, so the way I tr kind of describe it is that if you sleep with your tongue to the roof of the palate, with your lips sealed and breathing through the nose for eight hours, you're going to feel like you wake up with 10 copies. And the, the way that you do that, though, is that you have to reprogram your breathing. So you breathe something like 20,000 times a day. And so the idea of mouth taping for a lot of people is a little bit confronting because they think, oh, I'm going to suffocate. And if you have that reaction, it means you need to ease your way into it. And this is a whole area of myofunctional therapy in, um, that will work alongside a dentist. But what you can do is to start posturing your tongue to the roof of the palate. So you can do exercises where you hold the, and suction your tongue to the palate, and that actually helps to open your airways. Your tongue actually sits to the base of the skull. It sits and opens all the oropharyngeal muscles, 
And so your tongue should always be postured. So people that do yoga, they're always told to hold that tongue to the roof of the mouth. That's because it opens the airways. And so holding your tongue the right way seals the, the mouth and stops you from mouth breathing for one, but it helps to open the airway so you can breathe through the nose. The other way to do it is to start building tolerance to carbon dioxide. One thing we don't learn is that carbon dioxide serves a, a purpose and we should breathe very slowly, about six to eight times per minute. So that's how you should, your breathing pattern should be right throughout the day. And it should be deep nasal breathing into the diaphragm, uh, about um, probably four to five seconds in, and then a longer exhale because that activates the parasympathetic nervous system. And so that slower deep breathing through the nose, if, what it does is it builds your tolerance to carbon dioxide. And when you have carbon dioxide build up in your cells, it releases oxygen. You need that transfer to happen. And so when you breathe shallowly into your chest, through your mouth, you don't get that transfer happening in your cells. So you need to take deep nasal breaths into your diaphragm, a longer exhale to activate the parasympathetic nervous system. And then what you can start to do is test yourself. So you can take a deep breath, hold right into your diaphragm and pinch your nose. And what you'll do, Drew, is you'll feel a pressure building up in your nasal sinuses. Now you need to increase your tolerance to that. If you can get yourself up to say 40 seconds to a minute, that means your body can tolerate carbon dioxide in your nasal sinuses and you'll breathe much uh, more comfortably slowly through the nose. So reprogramming breathing and the my functional therapy, which is the tongue, the mouth, and uh, understanding how to use the oral structures as we should is all way that we need to both teach kids. If, you're, if your kids show signs of this, it's very, very important because they're going to increase the risk of braces and then also it links to ADHD and behavioral issues. So breathing like this and getting used to breathing like this um, is very, very important for good sleep and good brain health. Mouth taping, is if you can do that, that's fine. But if you feel it's a little bit um, confronting, then try daytime exercises. And then what I try and tell patients is try mouth taping for an hour before bed. That gets you into the breathing pattern. And then you should be able to sleep fine if you feel comfortable at that point. Fascinating. All really incredible things. Um, I want to go down to like, you know, typical questions that I see people have when it comes to dental uh, health that build on what you were saying before. So if the vitamins and nutrients are super important part of uh, bone health, and that includes your teeth, where do we get things like K2? And you talked about vitamin A and vitamin D, when you talk to your patients, what's the best sources of those? And do you recommend people supplement to make up the gap on those? So just a little side point on what we spoke about, Drew, is that the the biggest things I see in practice underlying all of these chronic diseases, the breathing issue uh, and the sleep and oxygen problem, the gut issue, which we covered. The other issue is I find that vitamin D deficiency is underlying nearly every chronic disease issue. And when we think about sleep apnea, there are hundreds of receptors on the brain, the brain stem for vitamin D. And so what we see in sleep apnea is we get a higher propensity towards vitamin D deficiency. So if you have breathing issues or you you have signs of upper airway resistance syndrome, I would be very much thinking along the lines of managing, of getting your vitamin D tested and you may need supplements. Now alongside that, uh, vitamin K2, you shouldn't take vitamin D without K2, by the way, because it creates need in your body for K2. K2 is also an antioxidant on the brain. So anyone with these kind of, uh, if you have problems with anxiety, depression, 
K2 comes from a set of foods from organ meats, from egg yolks, from grass-raised dairy. Um, you can get it from Japanese natto or fermented foods. So there's two types of K2. There's menaquinone 4 and menaquinone 7. The menaquinone 4 comes from the animal products. I think that's one that we need, our body needs the most because it uses it the most quickly. You get that from those foods I just mentioned, organ meats, egg yolks, and grass-raised dairy. The menaquinone 7 comes from your ferments, so they're bacterially derived. And what happens is that your liver will actually convert uh, menaquinone 7 and vitamin K1 to menaquinone 4, which is the other type of K2. So that's a little bit complicated. But the foods that we eat there are those uh, animal foods. Fat-soluble vitamins need to be converted to their activated form. So remember vitamin K1 uh, in green uh, vegetables. It needs to be converted to K2 in your body. So you'll only convert a very small amount of K1. We think we get enough vitamin K from green vegetables, but actually we need to get it from, from the animal products that convert it for us. We're not designed to convert it very well. And so that's the message alongside with all fat-soluble vitamins is that you need to have the active form. Vitamin A is the same. So beta-carotene in your carrots and your uh, red vegetables, for instance, that only a very small amount will convert to the active form, retinol. And so that's the one that works alongside both vitamin K2 and vitamin D. And so critical that you get this from your organ meats, your egg yolks, your uh, grass-raised dairy if you tolerate them. And it's one case that I always try and make for animal products is that you need to have the fat-soluble vitamins. If not, you need to supplement. So vitamin D and um, cod liver oil is a great food-based supplement. You can get cow-based uh, liver supplements. I, I do recommend if you don't get them in your diet and you're not thinking about them, you should probably look at a supplement. And if you think you suffer from a sleep problem, then you should get your vitamin D checked and monitor that as you go along because it can take you a long time to lift those um, levels up. Amazing. All great things and things that people can do regardless of what their uh, you know, personal dietary preferences are because I'm sure there's plenty of people that, that do eat meat but are also deficient in these items if they're not having organ-based uh, meat, um, if they're not getting enough, uh, you know, even separate from meat, if they're not getting enough sun. You know, so many people come into our clinic at the Ultra Wellness Center, and uh, regardless of their diet, they're uh, super deficient in vitamin D just because they're not getting that sun exposure um, out there. And you've so keenly reminded us that vitamin D is so much more than just a typical vitamin that plays so many different functions in our body, including in our uh, brain health. What do you recommend for people who have bleeding gums? And, and how can we have, uh, you know, healthier gums as part of our oral care process? Yeah, so I, I think we touched on it before, but really bleeding gums should be that first sign, you should be looking at your mouth and thinking, right, if there is inflammation in my mouth, there is something in my gut that's not happy. And so I would be tracking back through your diet, thinking about, you know, what is causing that inflammation? Why isn't your gut happy? I try and look at it via two ways is that we need to nourish the gut by its core, its core vitamin needs, which again, chronic digestive issues and periodontal disease, they both sit above vitamin D deficiency. They're, they're, there are studies that show uh, gum, risk of gum disease, risk of um, all of the chronic digestive system issues occur with vitamin D deficiency. I would look at potentially food intolerances. So if you do have what I find with patients that uh, have inflamed gums and gingivitis that have great oral hygiene, 
there's sometimes a food intolerance and we can have delayed hypersensitivity reactions, so IgG reactions that actually do cause this inflammation in the body when they're cleaning and flossing really well. So if you're one of these people that do have these inflamed gums and actually brush quite regularly, and there are a lot of people out there like this, I'd be thinking about there's potentially an intolerance or maybe a nutrient or deficiency and maybe look at your liver too because you can have a, a, a toxin overload um, that can cause that inflammation as well. So your mouth can really tell you a lot of things. And one thing I would definitely tell people to look at is that behind the front teeth down the bottom where you get that uh, dental buildup, uh, that your dentist builds up that's really painful for when you go there for your regular clean, if you get a thick buildup, that's called dental calculus. And that means your dental plaque is calcifying. And that's a sign that your body doesn't have enough vitamin K2. And it's also a sign, we're now showing that the coronary calcium score is the most uh, effective way to show your risk of heart disease. So if you're getting that calcified plaque in the mouth, it may mean that you've also got that calcium imbalance throughout the body. And we do see these calcified plaques in the heart um, that increase the risk of cardiovascular events. So the mouth can really be a, uh, you know, a marking point for a lot of different things throughout the body. Stephen, there's so much information that you have, and I'm so glad you wrote your book because, again, there's like these formidable books that really help expand our knowledge when it comes to wellness as being much bigger than the things that we previously considered. And I, I think your book does that with, uh, with dental health and oral health care and ties it into brain health and our overall health and so many other areas. And you know, there's so much that I, there's even so many questions here that I wanted to get into that I didn't have a chance to, but there is a couple more that we'll try to squeeze in, in our, uh, our podcast that we have here. I want to talk about an important one, which is you have these tongue exercises in your book. Um, let's talk about what they are and why we should do these exercises before we eat. Yeah. So if anyone that has any kind of digestive issues or, you know, digestive system, they find that they either get reflux or maybe they're constipated, it might mean that the digestive system isn't mobilizing the way it should. Now, the tongue is the start of the digestive system. I know you don't think of it that way, but the way you swallow, for instance, is the first way that your body will send messages to the digestive system. And so many people now have an incorrect swallow. And this all comes from putting the tongue forward in the mouth instead of up. And so the tongue should always be going up to that palate. It should be suctioned there when you're just posturing with your lips closed, but when you swallow, and you'll see this in kids, and you can test this yourself, uh, if, you have a, if your tongue comes forward when you swallow, so you can actually pull your lips apart, put your teeth together, and swallow, and if you see your tongue poke out between your teeth, or you see your tongue anywhere, or your head and neck move, it means you have a compensatory swallow method, and what that means is that you're pushing the tongue forward, and you're probably gulping air down, because what should happen is that the tongue should move the food up against the palate like a wave and it should go right to the back of your, your hard and soft palate and then down to the throat. That sends all the neural messages that your digestive system is working. And so if you don't swallow correctly, that's why in my book we go through learning how to put the tongue up. And if you're doing tongue exercises, it's actually pretty exhausting because once you do some of those um, repetitive exercises, you feel your neck is sore and your, the base of your skull can be a bit sore. That's because that's how you should be all the time. And this is the posture we need to get people to. And especially before meals, I find that if people can, can start exercising their tongue, they can, their digestive system can mobilize better as well. Amazing. If our audience wants to learn more about your work, 
and check out some of the other great tips that you have on dental health and improving our diet and what the ideal diet looks like for the structure of our teeth, which impacts our airways, which impacts our brain health. Where can people find out more about you? Sure, they can find me on my website, so www.drstevenlin.com. On social media, Instagram and Facebook, at Dr. Stephen Lin. My book is available on Amazon, uh, internationally, uh, The Dental Diet. So I really think that the mouth, we can frame a diet to, for dental health. But from what I've seen in my patients is that if you improve your dental health, it translates to the rest of the body. And you know you can't disconnect the two. And so I, I really hope that it helps them on that journey to both healing their mouth and the rest of the body as well. Uh, we really appreciate that. And, and also, uh, Stephen, because a big part of your work is getting the message out there and helping people find practitioners that can help them. Any suggestions or websites or resources? I know, for instance, um, my dentist here in Los Angeles is a biological dentist. And, and I found her originally on sort of like the, the website of like biological uh, dentistry. Uh, are there other resources that are out there for people who are looking for a dentist that's more open-minded and can help them um, address some of these issues? Yeah, so there are a lot of, as we talked about before, Drew, this area is very segmented. And so you'll often find that dentists will specialize in certain areas, but that's a good sign. So if, if your dentist specializes in airway, sleep, uh, myofunctional therapy, um, so one great, um, there's a website called the, the Academy of Applied Myofunctional Sciences. They've got a whole directory of uh, myofunctional therapists, which you may not have heard of, but they often work alongside dentists. And it's a great sign if your dentist does this because it means they're, they're aware of this whole area of oral, oral myology, but also how the, the mouth connects to the body. Sleep. And so the other area is holistic and biological dentists. And so these people are, are very much ver well-versed in things like mercury and, and anti-fluoridal and not using fluoride. And so I would all, the other thing I would do is that if you do find a dentist in your area that has these things, talk to them about how they practice and they'll tell you, you know, their philosophies. And it really is a journey for every person. So I would really encourage people to, you know, if you do find someone – find them with that background, but then talk to them about how they practice and their philosophies. And they'll tell you because, you know, it's a journey that they've gone as well. It's not something they've learned in dental school. And, and then that will tell you whether it fits with what you're looking for. And one big sign I would look for is for multidisciplinary practice, that they work with a, a whole host of other medical practitioners, functional medicine practitioners, and, you know, really try and understand the body as a whole. Great. I love all those resources. Dr. Stephen Lee, we're going to have to have you back on the podcast. There's so many other questions we didn't get a chance to cover over here, but I do appreciate you breaking down all this information and knowledge you have and really opening up our eyes to a subject and a field that I think is going to be new to many listeners. Uh, we really appreciate you joining us on the Broken Brain Podcast. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Drew. Thank you for having me. I'd love to come back. Amazing. Thank you. Thanks, Drew.